Okay, welcome to another episode of Unbound with Jeff and James. Really exciting conversation tonight with uh, Malcolm Davis. We're going to be talking about China. We're going to be talking maybe about space. We're going to be talking about a whole bunch of foreign policy things and that the, the landscape is shifting and we need to stay on top of that. So, James, I'll turn it over to you for a quick introduction of Malcolm and then we can jump ahead with our conversation. Thanks, Jeff. I, I think I'm going to start of how I came across uh, Dr. Malcolm Davis. Um, so we had our, our last speaker was uh, retired uh, uh, Vice Admiral Paul Madison, former commander of the uh, Canadian uh, Navy, was a defense attache down in um, uh, Australia. Now he works down one of the defense institutes down there. And and so uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because I think I Jeff's trying to do this outside to accommodate his family. And so I think he just had a kid go by. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I, so getting interested in some of the military matters within the South uh, South Pacific, um, it, Australia's always got uh, some leading thought uh, in regards to things like India, China, because it's very much within their uh, geostrategic uh, uh, environment. There's also, I think a lot of times, unfortunately, a lot of Canadian commentary uh, focuses in a, a comparison between Canada in the U.S., and I think that's an unfortunate thing because I think in terms of population, size, economic power, I think a much better uh, country always to kind of I've always done historically to compare ourselves to is Australia. And so uh, with that, I came across a gentleman, uh, Dr. Malcolm Davis. He's on Twitter uh, and uh, just some of his uh, and I, I recommend following him on Twitter. He he's uh, very insightful in some of his uh, matters in regards to to China. And also he's kind of opened up. Uh, a little bit for me in terms of his links uh, of what he links his material in that in regards to space and why space matters and all that. And so it was something I was a little astonished about uh, in terms of Australia. Reached out to a couple of my military friends saying, you know, have, have you come across this person? Have you, do you know him or anything? And uh, fortunately, yeah, through six degrees of separation and whatnot, someone uh, knew a uh, good doctor down, uh, down in Australia, linked us up and I have him here. So uh, Dr. Malcolm Davis, uh, welcome. I'm really appreciative of your time. I know we've bounced around the schedule a bit, but I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, I'm going to hand it over to you. Tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us uh, how you've become uh, a voice on defense issues uh, in Australia, uh, about China, and in regards to uh, space and, and defense. Well, thanks, James and, and Jeff. It's a great opportunity to have a chat about some really topical issues and, and where they're headed. Um, as you said, uh, probably a good place to start is, is my story, uh, I mean, how I got to where I am now. <laughs> uh, I'm a strategic analyst. Uh, I work with a think tank in Canberra called the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPI. Uh, some people call it ASPI, but it's correctly pronounced ASPI. Um, and uh, essentially, ASPI is the Australia's leading think tank on defence and national security affairs. So. On a, on a much smaller scale, we're the equivalent of CSIS in Washington uh, in that sense. Um, my story basically is I've come from academia. Uh, I spent eight years uh, at King's College London uh, in the, at the Defence Academy teaching defence studies there. Uh, did my PhD in the UK at the University of Hull, uh, focusing on the re revolution in military affairs back when that mm. was topical. Um, yeah, it was in, a big deal when I was coming Asia. up. Yeah. Um, and have spent about five years working in the Australian Department of Defence in strategic policy and, and capability development. 
uh, various different academic appointments since then, but also um, now at ASPE since 2016 uh, as a senior analyst in defence strategy and capability. So it's been right through a focus very much on defence, uh, defence capability, military technology, and uh, space for me has become an important area of that. I, I'm ASPE's lead uh, space thinker uh, on space policy and space security. Uh, and so I write extensively on that, but also focus on other things such as um, future warfare, um, air power, um, military technology, and the broader geopolitical aspects of, of rising competition between China and the United States, mm. uh, nuclear strategy, that sort of thing. So I'm fairly broad-based and eclectic in terms of, of my areas of, that I focus on, which is good, uh, rather than kind of uh, sort of burrowing down into one small area. Um, and it's a lot of fun. I come into work every day. There's always something interesting to work on. And, uh, you know, it's ASPE is, is, is it's a privilege to work with ASPE because you know, I'm surrounded by such great people uh, who are the, you know, sort of the height of their skills in terms of mm. strategic policy analysis. So very pleased to be able to be here. Um, but and also, I think um, the, the way things are going in terms of the strategic environment uh, at the moment, now is the time to be doing what I'm doing. Um, because there is a lot happening in the world. Um, a lot of people obviously are focused on COVID, for example, but yeah. as we talked about the rise of China and the challenge of competition between China and the United States and how it affects the Indo-Pacific region, I think is, is really critical. So I'm looking forward to having a discussion on that. Uh, and so, James, if you want to uh, sort of <laughs> jump in with some thoughts, we, yeah. can, we can get started. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, wow, uh, that's a wide breadth there. Um, I, you know, I, maybe some of my viewers uh, or, or sorry, listeners don't get it as uh, uh, excited about this stuff. But uh, for me, I'm kind of salivating. I love talking about uh uh, strategic policy, uh, defense uh, material. And so you've just kind of thrown a whole lot uh, at me there, um, you know, and uh, yeah, like a lot of people don't get excited about uh, discussing things like Clausewitz and soon all that. But uh, hey, I, I, I was brought up on that stuff. So uh, I, I can talk about that kind of material uh, at any time. So let's let's get into it. Let's talk about, um, I guess I'll call it the Asia Pacific Theater um, the rising um, concerns in regards to China. I think uh, it's kind of a poignant today. I think there was uh, some cyber uh, uh, activity based on Microsoft Exchange, which they're pointing towards China uh, today, which, you know, again, shows that this is uh, a big issue. And I think one of the things that I would like to, to, to dive into, and I, I kind of sent you the link, and well, the link came to my attention again from watching your feed was I think a, a, an article that was recently uh, posted from oh the one of the admirals of the J two intelligence of uh, the the U S um, raising a, being much more bellicose in terms of the rising threat of China and not just saying like Taiwan's a concern I want to talk about Taiwan because I don't I don't know if people fully recognize. Uh, um, uh, how much potentially of a concern it is, uh, and, and why? But he was also saying there's there's other there's other areas right now, and you know if we really take a, a look back, you can see a bunch of the um, almost I think the word was bullying type activities that occurred from regards to India, um, you know uh, Japan, uh, whatnot, Australia being a big one as well. Um, 
yeah, can we, can we talk a bit about that? Can we talk, uh, you know, you, I think you said that this was an important article. Can you, can you tell me a bit more? Yeah, look, I think that when, when you look at how China has emerged in recent years, uh, particularly since uh, Xi Jinping took over as, as president and essentially chairman of everything, um, uh, you know, I think that China has taken a fundamental shift in direction away mm. from where it was under Deng uh, and Jiang Zemin and even Hu Jintao. Um, it's no longer you know, the, the phrase that is commonly thrown around, biding its time and hiding its strength. It's no longer doing that. Uh, under Xi, China is determined to rise and to revise the international rules-based order in a manner that suits its needs and its interests. Um, and it talks about, uh, under Xi, uh, they talk about the China dream, a, re a rejuvenated China that is a rich country with a strong army, uh, leading a community of common destiny, which mm. is essentially code for uh, a Chinese-led international order or a regional order, certainly in the Indo-Pacific. But China is, is moving more globally than that. I think they're, they're in, you know, interested in promoting their influence and control over key international bodies um, to shape the international system and ultimately bring about an end to a US-led rules-based international order that has been in existence really since the end of the Second World War mm -hmm. and replace it with a Chinese-led international order. Um, the, the, at the broader level, there is an ideological dimension to this competition um, where you have countries like China and Russia challenging uh, the traditional dominance of Western liberal democratic systems uh, and promoting an alternative model of governance in the form of authoritarianism, um, and promoting of that as, as a means to rapid economic development and prosperity to developing world, the developing world. So you have at the most fundamental level um, a ideological competition between rising authoritarianism versus Western liberal de democratic states. And you have a, at a geopolitical level, uh, a China that is determined to end um, the US century and replace it with a China century. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that obviously is a military and security dimension focused very much on the Indo-Pacific region with the core focus being on Taiwan and the South China Sea. Um, and I think that's that's the area with, where, where everyone now in the Australian strategic policy community is focused on in terms of what China does this decade in relation to Taiwan. Um, we know that the PLA does not have the ability to un undertake an amphibious invasion of Taiwan at this current time, mm -hmm. but they are working very hard and very fast to get that capability um, such that later in the decade, perhaps in the second half of this decade, uh, they would have the ability to do that operation. And the question then is, what do the Chinese do when it becomes very clear that the Taiwanese people and the Taiwanese government will not accept unification on Beijing's terms? Mm. Uh, the Taiwanese uh, have looked at what happened in Hong Kong and they looked at what's happening in Xinjiang province and Tibet, and they want no part of it. And so you have seen, I think, a, a dramatic boost in the number of people in Taiwan who basically say, let's keep the status quo. Not so much going independent, but let's keep the status quo. We do not want to reunify or unify with China. And for Xi, that poses a huge political challenge because he staked so much of his political credibility and his grip on power on getting back Taiwan. Uh, 
every significant speech really that he has has made since he came to power has focused on getting back Taiwan as part of the China dream. If he fails to do that, then I think he's finished. He he would be quietly removed into the side and someone else mm. would take his place. So um, I see the real risk is that over the next few years, you will see China gradually increasing coercive pressure through grey zone operations and coercive um, uh, concentration of coercive effect against Taiwan to try and get Taiwan to, to, if I may borrow from the Game of Thrones, bend the knee to Beijing. <laughs> um, Taiwan will refuse. And then you will see China, we're confronted with the, with the decision, well, if Taiwan's not going to come peacefully, then we have to use force. Hmm. And that then goes into the whole issue of, well, how does the US, at, at the US administration of the day uh, respond? Um, hmm. How do US allies respond to that challenge? And uh, you know, that's, that's a key issue um, in the sense that, you know, we know that if the if the Chinese can move very quickly to take Taiwan and present a fait accompli, then the risk is the US says, well, it's a fait accompli, we can't do anything about it. But then the consequences of China controlling Taiwan have to be thought about. Um, and the failure of the US to deter that has to be thought about. Um, you know, the potential increase in, in risk to the, to, in, in, of security to Japan and Philippines and other parts of Indo-Pacific then are magnified because mm -hmm. China can stage forward from Taiwan. But it also undermines US credibility in the region. If, on the other hand, the US do intervene militarily and we end up in a major war between the US and China, that would, would most likely involve Japan and, and almost certainly would involve Australia as well. Um, we have to think about the two outcome, possible outcomes of that. Either the US wins, what does China do then? Or the US loses and what does China do and what does the US do? So in terms of pathways of scenarios, there, there's, there's, it's pretty complex, but yeah. it seems to be going down the path of a crisis peaking sometime this decade where China will be determined to take Taiwan irrespective of, of, of the potential risks. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe they might miscalculate and think that they can deter the US from intervening or they can defeat the US if it intervenes. And so you then have to think about escalation and you could game this out in terms of wargaming and find out what yeah. happens then. But I think this, so just, this is the sort of discussion this is the sort of discussion that certainly we're having at Aspie and I think is, is also happening in, in the halls of power at, at Department of Defense as well. So maybe just just to come back a little bit because you know thinking about Hong Kong and I'm just wondering about the parallels between Hong Kong and Taiwan. Nineteen ninety eight, I think it was that Hong Kong goes away from the British back into becoming of this quasi independent state. And China takes no moves at that time to take it over or do anything. And there was a I remember some fear around the time that there would be some hard measures and there weren't. What was quietly happening clearly now in hindsight was that China had a mind and maybe this only came up under Z to take over some of the institutions within Hong Kong, whether that's the media, um, small different small governments, um, police forces, whatever it is, so that at some point the takeover just feels inevitable. It's that there's really nobody left to fight. And I'm wondering if now that we've seen that, what happened in Hong Kong, if there's a similar sort of thing happening in Taiwan where there is this kind of 
undercurrent effect of trying to infiltrate and take over the institutions within Taiwan, whether that's political, media, even pop culture, things like that, to dull out some sort of resistance to an eventual annexation. Is that is that a, is that a risk? And is it the same kind of risk as what happened in Hong Kong? Because I don't think anybody saw that kind of approach coming in two, in the year 2000, for example. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think the Chinese would like to take Taiwan peacefully if they could. And the way to do that is exactly how you've laid it out, what they did with Hong Kong, whereby they gradually weakened uh, Taiwanese resistance um, to, you know, to the idea of, of unification. Uh, they work through the media. They get um, young Taiwanese to go and work in China for very lucrative salaries. Um, you know, they influence Taiwanese universities and so on and so forth. So this grey zone operation uh, is occurring on an ongoing basis, even as the Chinese uh, ramp up coercive pressure on on uh, the current Taiwanese government to to fold. Um, but the problem is that. With Hong Kong, we kind of made the foolish assumption that the Chinese would allow Hong Kong to remain the special administrative region yeah. for 99 years, I think it was. Um, and that hasn't happened. Uh, we're now seeing democracy and freedom stamped out in Hong Kong in a fairly brutal way. And the Taiwanese are looking at this and thinking, look, let's not kid ourselves. That's what's going to happen to us if we allow the Chinese to take over. So whilst they, the Chinese might have some success in this grey zone campaign of weakening Taiwanese resistance, particularly, I think, amongst the younger people, um, I think the, 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 the government recognises the risks. Uh, and certainly what they, what they fear, I think, is uh, a large number of Taiwanese ending up in, in re-education camps like in Xinjiang. Um, and they don't want that. So yeah. I, I don't necessarily see the Taiwanese government ultimately um, bending the knee to Beijing. I think they'll stand firm um, and they'll definitely stand firm if the US and its allies, including Australia, makes it clear that we'll support Taiwan. Um, the risk then is, well, um, how impatient is Xi uh, and uh, how confident are the PLA that they can do an invasion and successfully and also defeat or deter US intervention. So mm. it, it is a different scenario in that sense from the Hong Kong takeover in, in 98, 97, 98. Hmm. How does, uh, what is, what lens or view does uh, G take in, in terms of his look, outlook strategically? I, I mean, we, we talk about the retention uh, of power, um, but I wonder, you know, is there a historical lens as he views things? Is this the return of the the Middle Kingdom? Like, how, how does he view things? Or is is it they're just more of a criminal nexus in terms of power, money in his pockets to his friends? Mm. Um, yeah. Can you have you yeah. looked much at it? I, I think she is clearly much more nationalist than Hu Jintao or Jiang Zemin or, or Deng. Uh, he, he, he sees himself more along the lines of Mao Zedong. Um, and very clearly, he's trying to create that personality cult type arrangement whereby he is the center of all things, not the Chinese Communist Party or the Chinese government. Um, and that's a real danger, I think. So there is that nationalist personality um, uh, dynamic that, that is new under Xi that wasn't there really up, uh, after Mao. Um, and secondly, there is this determination to 
you know, from the Chinese perspective to um, overturn what they call the century of humiliation, um, where they see themselves as having been um, uh, overrun by rapacious colonial powers from the beginning of the Opium War through really to the end of the Second World War and, and the end of the Chinese Civil War with the rise of the Chinese Communist Party. They see that as a century of humiliation and they have this massive chip on their shoulder left over yeah. from that um, and they can't get past it. Um, in that sense, you know, if you look, for example, at modern Germany, Germany has gone through the most awful period between 1933 and 1945 when it had, you know, the worst um, fascist Nazi government in power. Yeah. Um, and that's a forever a black stain on, on their, their history. But they've moved past it and they've matured, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. you're now seeing a Germany that is quite confident and, and, and not looking back, but looking forward. Yeah. China under Xi is looking back. It's focused on this century of humiliation and it can't get past it. And it has mm-hmm. this paranoia under Xi of that the West is trying to reimpose a century of humiliation. And where you saw, for example, in the speech that Xi gave at the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party, he says that you know, any uh, external actors that try to bully or, or contain China will have their heads bashed against a great wall of steel created by the Chinese people. Yeah. That sort of mentality suggests that he's thinking very much still in the mindset of the century of humiliation. So they are determined under Xi to, to, to push that behind them and rise to or rejuvenate to become, once again, you might call it a modern middle middle kingdom uh, where um, China is the dominant power and China's neighbours accommodate um, China's interests in return for peace and prosperity. And that's the old tribute system in a, in a new form. Um, and that's where I think Xi's head at is. Yeah. Is at. You know, I think that's where he's thinking. Uh, he, he wants to see that return to... Uh, the Middle Kingdom uh, all under heaven, uh, yep. except that instead of the dynastic period, he's thinking in terms of himself yeah. above even the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, I, I, I started seeing some of those elements uh, in terms of like working through some of Kissinger's material on China. He talks um, uh, very much about Middle Kingdom aspects. And it was interesting. I, I think, you know, uh, some of the people within Canada uh, when we talk about past humiliations, they've they've mm-hmm. kind of tied to certain things that have happened uh, within Canada, North America, in terms of the uh, opioid uh, epidemic, which is a lot of that market has been flooded through uh, um, uh, uh, Chinese drugs and whatnot. Is a reverse of the opioid war, yeah. war now, and now it's it's them doing it to us. Um, you know, I, I mean, we always try to view things uh, sometimes through a historical lens of what we know. I just bring up Xi because I one of the things that I always appreciated my strategic studies uh, back in the day of school. Um, uh, one of my professors, I think it was uh, Dr. Holger Hervig, um, talked about a lot of times we get very caught up in these national nexuses, big moving machine. And he always he said something I always appreciate is a lot of times, though, when we go to war um, and we, you know, we have these conflicts, it comes down to individuals. A certain individual, you know, crossed a line, uh, whether they were a cognizant of it or not, that the other a person on the other side 
you know, couldn't retract from. And therefore, like, and it draws everything. Sometimes we, 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 we look too much into history as this big stateless national type machine and these nations rubbing against or tribal entities and whatnot rubbing against each other. But uh, I always, a lot of times, will try to look at what is the individual there who's driving it um yeah so i i like g g comes up a lot more um now in terms of and how he views things historically and what are his blind spots do you do you have any perspective on that what he's not seeing and where he could trip up and and pull us into i think probably overconfidence in what china is capable of doing in a military sense or in a geopolitical sense if you look at the belt and road initiative mm. um that's g's you know sort of grandmaster plan if you like for um expanding china's influence and presence and yet it's being pushed back on by the region in many ways because of the way it's being executed um at, at the at the tactical level if you like uh in terms of the quality of, of the products that china is promoting uh and the very clear political baggage that comes with it in the sense that if you if you buy in if you accept um chinese in investment then you're in debt we own you uh you give us yeah. what uh, you give us what we want a lot of countries are wising up to this and you're starting to see increasing pushback and i think that more and more countries um in the indo-pacific will push back on the notion of a chinese-led order because they want the prosperity, they want the benefits, they want the trade, but they don't want to give up their personal freedoms or their political freedoms or their national freedom to chart their own path. And I think this is really where the US and its allies have to come to the party and provide an alternative uh, uh, model or an alternative opportunity for many of these states. Some states, I think, um, are in China's pocket and there's nothing you can do about it. But I think that there's a proportion of states in the Indo-Pacific region uh, that I think, you know, really we need to work hard to make sure that they don't fall into China's orbit. Um, And it is very reminiscent in that sense of the old Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union. Um, And, uh, you know, we need to provide a positive um, uh, alternative to them. And maybe here at the moment, we've got a weakness here because, you know, when you look at the way the US is going and you look at, you know, aspects of the EU and it's an inability to solve things, it's not looking good. Um, for no, Western we're doing Mon- this. We're going through this retraction, right? Like yeah. even in Canada right now, we're our, our military is just uh, it's not pretty. They're kind of killing each other. Uh, and we're, we're having now cultural officers uh, position be established and restorative justice elements. And uh, we just had uh, uh, some form of letter. Maybe Jeff can speak to it uh, better. I was I was very busy working over the weekend and I've somewhat unplugged from some of our politics because it is in the realm of the ridiculous right now. But it, it was basically all the leading a lot of leading academics activists media and celebrities basically saying pull defense funding don't buy new jets everything's about climate change and uh um you know the pandemic and that's where all the money should be going and you know big long article in our major uh national newspaper the globe and mail just recently said don't call it uh uh the, you know uh, 
Canadian uh, Canadian defense call it like national security department of national security, and it should be very inward focused. Mm. And so, and, and we've seen through the U S uh, 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 political discussions, there has been a, a very big retraction in, or a fight over the retraction of uh, of U.S. engagement, right? So it, it's um, it, it is a it, it's a it's a concerning time, and I always wonder too in regards to China. Mm-hmm. If China looks at something like Obama in Syria uh, with his red line, do they perceive again taking Xi's uh, uh, self his confidence and arrogance? saying, well, U.S. lately really hasn't shown itself to uh, following up or standing firm on its uh, tripwires or, or red lines, so to speak, that it, it it's laid out. Uh, what are your well, considerations? I, I, do think we need, I do think we need to do a better job domestically in dealing with key issues um, without mm-hmm. um, reverting to self-flagellation, uh, which yeah, is what we seem to be doing at the moment. Um, and we need to identify and highlight the positive aspects of Western liberal democratic systems yeah. um, that we don't often do enough. Uh, and yet, when you look at what the Chinese and the Russians are doing, they're exploiting that at every opportunity. So I, I do think we are engaged in, a, in an intense strategic competition between Western liberal democracies and authoritarian states, that mm-hmm. we need to start getting our head in that space and actually start fighting it. And um, I think that uh, there are obviously people within the US Department of Defense and the US government that are recognizing the importance of this. There's certainly people here in Australia that are recognizing the importance of it. But the media still, I don't think really quite are on the ball in regard to this. Uh, Maybe this latest thing with the cyber aspects about regarding China, you know, might stir some interest, but it's also short term, the mindsets here Mm. in, in Western states. Uh, there's no long-term strategic plan. There's no grand strategy. Um, and I think that's that's one of our vulnerabilities that China and Russia can exploit. I mean, I think that it's a, it's a well-documented fact that very few countries can stand up and back their military like the U.S. can when they need to. And they have a real culture of backing their military. But they can't be the only ones to do it. Um, and I think that there has to be kind of, like like you said, part of the, the way that you fight the the China line about this is just new American imperialism is by it not just being from America, by being it a coalition of a variety of different diverse countries with different backgrounds mm. um, that aren't all, you know, immediately under the, the sway of the U.S., that all all get together to offer a better alternative. Um, mm. I guess I had, I had one question just to go back a bit, and, and, and James asked about some, some Xi's potential weaknesses. One of the things that is different about China is that it has kind of become a cult of personality and he's tried to form himself as the head of that cult. Um, does that present some weaknesses? And I'm thinking about this from a book I read, 2034, by Admiral uh, Starvidas, which is a fictional um, you know, take on, on a war with China. But one of the weaknesses that does come out is the Chinese government's difficulty in dealing with military defeats, um, setbacks, because it's very, very damaging when those things occur in a situation where there are no alternatives and one person is deemed to have all the answers and, and have all the solutions. Mm-hmm. Is that is that a potential risk? Like, does he face real risk from the inside of the state? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I've read the book as well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that um, 
there is the interesting question of how does China handle a significant military defeat, uh, you know, particularly in regards to Taiwan. Um, my guess is that uh, you would see a change of leadership um, or you would see Xi basically purging the leadership around him to try and keep himself in power. Um, but, you know, that doesn't change um, China's need to recover Taiwan. So they would be back. And so one of the things that I've um, been beating the drum on recently is the is the notion of protracted war. Um, how do we you know, deal with the concept of protracted war lasting months or even years with a major power adversary like China? Mm. We assume that war is always going to be fast and over in the space of a few days or a few weeks. It may not be that. It may be that either the Chinese um, get beaten badly but, and they go back and they recover and try again, or we get beaten badly and then we have to go back, recover our forces as we did after Pearl Harbor and try again. Um, and I think that the, the idea of protracted war um, uh, whilst trying to avoid escalation across the nuclear threshold is a really interesting issue to deal with. But when you add in the, uh, the issue of leadership and how, to, how, to, how Xi would respond because his, you know, his overwhelming interest is his own grip on power, uh, if he's challenged, how does that change the dynamics of escalation and the, the nature of the conflict? Yeah. So um, in, 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 in Western liberal democracies, if the US suffered a major defeat uh, in a war with China, let's say it lost a couple of carriers, um, I don't think you would see the president being impeached. What yeah. you would see is the country gathering around the president and saying, we must continue to fight and strike back in the same way that happened after Pearl Harbor. Um, China is a completely different situation. You could see a power struggle, uh, which would be you know really difficult to chart out how that would how that would eventuate. And so you, you mentioned capacity and nuclear capacity. H how does that factor into the situation? Because I don't think there's ever been an international kind of theater that has had to deal with a modern military that also has the use of nuclear weapons. There was just a video, I believe it came from the PLA office that was about two minutes long and had lots of Chinese battleships in it and said, you know, we've decided there's a nuclear exception for Japan and that if Japan is involved whatsoever in um, in any combat with China, that China will release nuke, nukes on it until it surrenders, basically, mm -hmm. with, with unlimited nuclear, you know, no restraint whatsoever. Um, is that a credible threat? And how do the Allies and, and, and in the Pacific theater, how do they de think about and counter any risk of uh, nuclear escalation? Well, see, we really haven't had to think about nukes um, seriously in warfare for some time. Um, obviously, apart from maybe the worry that North Korea might do something crazy, um, that was really it. Um, up, and then if you want to go back further, it's the end of the Cold War, and then we were th thinking seriously about large-scale use of nuclear weapons. But now, going forward, if we're th talking about China and um, the U.S., and the possibility of miscalculation or misperception that could lead to escalation, that's a very real threat. The fact that the Chinese uh, have their nuclear and their conventional ballistic missiles entangled in geographic sense and in utility sense. Um, and how do we distinguish between a DF-26 that's a nuclear-armed DF-26 as opposed to one that's conventionally armed? Uh, how do the Chinese distinguish between our strikes on their soil 
to take out their command and control systems uh, as opposed to our strikes that would be preliminary to us disarming their nuclear forces. So there's, there's all sorts of scenarios here that we have to think about. And the one we're talking about here with Japan, where the Chinese are kind of hinting that maybe they might put aside their no first use doctrine and use nuclear weapons against Japan, I think is, is designed to intimidate Japan um, to try and get them to back down. Uh, but it hasn't worked. Um, and I think that our response to that is to strengthen extended nuclear deterrence vis-a-vis -vis Japan and China uh, and also strengthen our ability to defend against ballistic missile attacks um, with more effective ballistic missile defense. You know, uh, from my understanding, uh, currently BMD, uh, the, at least the national missile defense component of BMD has only had a 50% success rate in carefully stage managed tests. Hmm. Um, so, you know, we need to do better than that. And yeah. uh, that's re we really don't have a lot of time. Uh, so it's partly boosting the credibility of extended nuclear deterrence. It's partly increasing the effectiveness of national of missile defense. And I think it's also exploring prompt strike options so, so that if we do see a threat emerging, we can attack it before it's used, uh, essentially shooting the archer for, before he releases his arrow. Um, is that with the use of, of our nuclear weapons or is that... Or is that simply conventional, but early warning enough that you could prevent? Fast conventional with hypersonic weapons. Uh, we need to, to really pull the finger out to use an Australian expression on hypersonic weapons uh, in terms of getting them working, because the Chinese and the Russians are ahead of us on that. Um, Maybe so, talk about that a bit. What are what are hypersonic weapons? What's, what's the development in that field look okay. like and what are they used for? Because I think a lot of people don't know about that kind of area. Yeah, well, hypersonics basically are, are, are missiles or platforms that travel uh, at five times the speed of sound or faster. Uh, and the sorts of hypersonic weapons that we're looking at are initially either what's known as hypersonic glide vehicles, which are basically um, uh, shot into near space uh, with a ballistic missile then released and these things skip over the Earth's atmosphere at hypersonic speeds of Mach 5 to Mach 8 or Mach 10. Uh, hmm. 10 times the speed of sound, eight times the speed of sound. Um, the other is hypersonic cruise missiles, which are propelled during flight by, by what's known as a supersonic combustion ramjet engine. This is getting very technical, but a scramjet. Um, and that those are designed to fly at high altitude and strike targets rapidly uh, using hypersonic speeds. So between these two types of hypersonic weapons, um, you have the ability to... Um, strike at a target a long way away uh, and in, in a very short space of time. It might be you know, a thousand kilometers away, but you cover that space in say two to three minutes. And so therefore in the context of what we're talking about with the, the risk of a Chinese nuclear strike on Japan, if we can have good intelligence surveillance reconnaissance capabilities, including capabilities look down from space, to see mobile missiles before they're being launched and strike at those missiles with conventional weapons, then that adds to the effectiveness of our missile defense solution because it reduces China's ability to launch attacks. And if they do get to launch attacks, then maybe our missile defenses are better prepared to defend against them. But ultimately, all of that has to be underpinned by extended nuclear deterrence, which basically says, if you detonate a nuclear weapon on the territory of an ally such as Japan or Australia, 
the US will respond or retaliate with nuclear weapons against you. And I think we have to strengthen that because the only reason that China is making these uh, nuclear threats against Japan is because maybe they figure uh, extended nuclear deterrence isn't as credible as, as, as we would like it to be. Do you think there's a strong belief in the power of deterrence at the upper levels of the people who actually pulled the trigger on that? Okay, so we had a little technical issue there. So we're jumping back in with the question I was asking, which is basically, are, are the people at the top, mostly at the US, are, are they prepared to pull the trigger on a nuclear confrontation? Is that, are, are systems set in place for that? Or, or have the years since the Cold War kind of dulled our appetite for that sort of immediate response? And the current political climate, which I think is kind of to be very cautious and to be very kind of non-confrontational. Oh, look, I think if you speak to the uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen at Stratcom, uh, they would, well, they wouldn't give a definitive answer, but I can assure you that yes, that under the right circumstances, they would um, use nuclear weapons because if they're not prepared to, then our deterrence just falls apart. Um, so they have to be prepared to do it. Uh, deterrence is not about bluffing. It is about the willingness to and the capability to use nuclear weapons to achieve policy outcomes. Um, and, and so in order for deterrence to work, you have to have, firstly, the capability to do it. Secondly, you have to communicate that willingness to your own leadership and make sure they're willing to do it. And thirdly, you have to communicate your capability and willingness to the adversary to make sure the adversary knows that you're prepared to do it then deterrence works and then you don't have to do it, um, which I think is the key thing. Uh, but the moment you start saying, well, maybe we wouldn't do it or, you know, yeah. uh, then it falls apart and suddenly you are in a situation where you're being confronted with nuclear threats. Hmm. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Like we're, um, we're going back to the nuclear era, you know, it's, uh, if, um, I feel for the kids, you know, there's, they, they deal with the, the, uh, impending doom of elements of like climate change and all that. And, uh, um, now they're going to feel the anxiety that I felt in my youth as a kid with, uh, the potential of nuclear annihilation. I mean, that's, you know, um, I'm, you know, uh, early forties and it was a very real thing when I was a kid, uh, about this potential nuclear annihilation uh, based on uh, the Soviet Union and the U.S. going toe-to-toe. And that's, it, like, it's gone pretty quiet, but now it seems to be something that uh, has really, I mean, at least people within the defense circles and that, it, it's really coming um, to the forefront. Like you said, I don't think the media is really savvy on it. We're not really talking about it, but it's there. I think you're right. And when you look uh, at both China and Russia, uh, they're both modernizing their nuclear forces. They both see them as important. Russia in particular, I think, um, has elevated the role of nuclear weapons in its defense policy and is now investing in things like Poseidon, the, the uh, nuclear armed to long range unmanned underwater vehicle, Brevsnik, uh, if I pronounce it correctly, uh, which is the nuclear powered cruise missile. Um, you know, all these things the Russians are investing heavily in in terms of nuclear modernization because they see nuclear weapons as their answer to perce perceptions of NATO conventional superiority. So ironically, the tables have reversed. In the Cold War, we were reliant on nuclear weapons to offset Warsaw Pact conventional superiority. Now it's the reverse. The Chinese, I think, um, are 
having an internal discussion about should they move from a pure counter value posture of, of, of minimal deterrence, uh, no first use, to a more counter force posture um, of perhaps willingness to break that no first use um, uh, standard. And those silos that, that were in the um, uh, human Gansu region that were recently discovered uh, suggest that the Chinese are actually moving to increase their warhead numbers on missiles, um, potentially down the track uh, to, to reach parity with the US and Russia. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you factor in other nuclear powers like India, Pakistan, North Korea, uh, potentially Iran down the track. It, you know, it, it's becoming, I think nuclear weapons are certainly not passe. They are very much front and center. Uh, and we have to have a, a discussion about you know how we weave um, the nuclear dimension in amongst everything else, be it space or cyber or artificial intelligence or quantum technologies and so forth. I mean, all really simple little things to deal with here, right? We're not dealing with any complex. Nothing to see here. I mean, you know, it's just stuff that can be done in an afternoon, I'm sure. I mean, we're not even we're not even talking about drones yet or. (laughs) So sorry, I have my my daughter coming to say goodnight. Goodnight, sweetheart. (laughs) Sweetie, love you. I'm on my podcast. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry about this. <laughs> um, yeah, so <laughs> a moment of levity and in, in, uh, an element of sheer terror. And of course, I was talking with my, my microphone off. So maybe we can talk about space um, and uh, and what the space race looks like. What is space military? What does the militarization of space look like? Um, is Space Force going to actually be a contributing player in this because i have heard it said by not just kind of right-wing people in the u.s that space force may be the best legacy that trump leaves behind even if they have to change the name down the road um what what are the developments there what's the landscape and kind of what's at stake yeah okay well i mean to answer your question on space force first I, i don't see space force going away um the biden administration is supporting it I don't doubt that future administrations will support it. So Space Force is here to say, here to stay. Uh, what it does need to do is um, provide some sort of detail and understanding actually as to what it does. Um, I don't think they've really thought that one through. So I think that's a process of discussion and debate that is happening right now. Uh, you know, what is Space Force's role and how does it achieve it and what sort of resources does it need? And, and there, I know there's there's intense debate between some in the U.S. Space Force that want to look much further out than the near-Earth region between uh, low-Earth orbit and geostationary orbit and focus on the moon and cislunar space. And you have people talking about cruisers cruising the space lanes of commerce and so forth. So it's very Star Trek um, <laughs> or more closer, probably more to the expanse rather than Star Trek. I love uh, that show, by the way. Great show. Uh, great, great, show. great books, too. Yeah, uh, you know, I get fans. I get so tired. Of, like, everything's about Star Trek and uh, Star Wars uh, within our political commentary here in, in our uh, in our province and in Canada. And I think we need to have a lot more Battlestar Galactica and the, yeah. the Expanse, to be honest. If, if you really want to understand Space War, you what Space Warfare, you watch The Expanse. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But to get back to, to where we were... Um, uh, look, I think in terms of the broader aspects of military space, space has been militarized since the dawn of the space age. We've used satellites to support 
terrestrial military operations. Um, but now we're moving. Okay, the, the technical issues continue, um, <laughs> but we're, we're bringing our conversation back. So the current militarization of space, Dr. Davis, you were saying that space has always been militarized. We've been using it since for satellites and to assist kind of ground warfare uh, for long periods of time. But what's changed in the last kind of 10 years or so? What's changed is I think we're heading towards weaponization of space. Uh, you're starting to see the development of counter space capabilities, what people normally call ASATs or anti-satellite weapons. Uh, occurring in China and Russia, uh, designed to be able to hold our satellites at risk uh, in a future war. And that's one of the reasons why Space Force was developed, was to respond to that changing dynamic. Uh, so there's a saying that we use down here in Australia that space is contested, congested and competitive. Um, contested in the sense that you are seeing more risk of warfare in space occurring through these anti-satellite capabilities. The, the ASATs are becoming more sophisticated rather than just physical destruction of a satellite that creates space debris. You're seeing soft kill capabilities designed to disable rather than destroy. Um, and so I think that, that where we're headed now is a more contested environment where you're starting to see major power comp competition occurring, uh, not just in Earth orbit, but also out by the moon. And so maybe there's something to be said for the, the, the blue water vision of Space Force in the longer term, particularly as humanity returns to the moon and starts doing stuff on the surface like lunar resource mining and so forth. Um, but for the here and now, I think the focus is very much uh, that Leo to Geo environment and how we manage major power competition in that region, how we avoid miscalculation, uh, there's a lot of legal and regulatory work occurring. Uh, the Brits uh, put a General Assembly Resolution 75-36 on responsible behaviour in space, which is really important. And it's important that every state gets behind that and works on that. But the challenge, of course, is it's non-binding. Uh, and so the, 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 the problem we now face uh, is how do we get countries like China and Russia and others to actually agree to a binding resolution that can be uh, that leads to some sort of arrangement that is verifiable and able to be monitored, particularly when you start to see um, cyber warfare becoming used as a as a means to attack satellites. You can't easily verify and monitor compliance. So there's there's a number of problems there, but the, but that legal and regulatory discussion continues to happen. All of this, of course, is happening against the context of the rapid commercialization of space. Uh, we just had uh branson go up in vss unity to the edge of space we've got bezos about to launch in the next 24 hours uh on his vehicle um and you're seeing the us uh and its and, and its partners going back to the moon under uh, project artemis uh sometime this decade chinese making about noises about doing the same thing either uh, in the early to mid 2030s um so i think there's there's a lot of interest in, in what mm -hmm. is happening in space is becoming a highly dynamic, highly uh, interesting area uh, that I think is 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 complex and fascinating. Uh, it, yeah, that's uh, um, yeah. <laughs> Again, we talk about space shows. There was one on uh, Apple uh, TV there that. Uh, oh, yeah, I, 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 you know, tripped up across that one and I binged on that. I was like, wow, this is really good. Yeah. Um, you know, re, re looking at uh, 
the uh, space race uh, through a different lens or, or re-engineering it. And, and now, you know, it, it, the way the, the things that you talk about, it's almost like it's like kind of going down that road now in, in regards to uh, uh, our competition with China. Um, remarkable time. Deep well, complexities. I, I think, I think yeah. we're potentially heading into a new golden age because, mm. you know, the last time we were like this was Apollo, obviously, where we had grand uh, visions of uh, lunar bases and ships to Mars and all that sort of stuff. And it was a stillborn dream because, you know, the, the Nixon administration just gutted the space program and almost immediately after Apollo 11 touched down. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the, the aspirations we had at that time just were never realized we ended up with the space shuttle and ultimately the space station but now with the commercialization of space i think you have a new dynamic that is uh, that is a new force that is driving things forward and you know say what you will about the space billionaires they are being transformative and they are changing yes. things in, in a very yeah. positive sense yes um, and you know potential for example uh, with spacex and its uh, starship super heavy to be able to transform how we get off uh, Earth into space, you know, at uh, a, a couple of million dollars a launch for a hundred tons into low Earth orbit, compared to NASA's SLS at two billion dollars a launch once per year. Yeah, um, you know, it's yeah. a fundamentally different dynamic and business model, and I think that's really important. Um, but it also, obviously, there's that military dimension, which I think is far more sophisticated now, and because we rely on space so much more to fight wars the way we want to fight them uh, that with uh, information-based warfare. Um, it's becoming far more important uh, mm -hmm. to maintain space access and space control and far more um, uh, uh, sort of incentive for an adversary to attack those space capabilities. So uh, I am a bit of a pessimist. I, I do think we are going to see space warfare in the next conflict, uh, yeah. no matter how much the lawyers and the academics would like to avoid it i think it's going to happen we just have to yeah. plan our way around it and and hope that we can avoid it getting out of control yeah i don't think a lot of people appreciate and even i think listening to you uh, it's kind of even expanded my uh my thoughts on it is uh, you know uh, how much of our quality of life is tied to space-based capabilities i.e satellites um and then you know talking about the next war and, and and conflict attacking those assets. And some of that might not be uh, physical. They might be, as you said, like through cyber and all that. And um, so it is, it's a whole new uh, nexus. Um, uh, I think it's important. It's, it's to think of it as a, as a domain as well, because yes, I'm sure for nation states, certainly superpowers, China and the U S if you're able to control the entry and exit to low earth orbit, um, you know, whether that's through weapons or through, you know, whatever kind of, uh, you know, gateway that you want to build up there, that's a significant, significant issue leading for the next 50 years as, as space becomes more accessible. And as, you know, I think inevitably there will be some commercialization and, and mining of, or whatever. Well, if you have the only gateway on and off the planet, you've really got a, you know, you've really got a, the other, everybody else in a box to dance to your tune. So I, I think that there, I'm sure smart people are thinking about that down the ring, down the road. And I'm sure that, it, you know, it, I think it will only take just like the advance of nuclear weapon, only take one or two of the right inventions at the right time for suddenly this to become a lot more cost effective. Um, and about space, but we can't get a so, podcast going. <laughs> so, so it feels like we're under a little cyber warfare of ourselves right now. Um, 
So I think we'd better wrap this up. I thank you, Dr. Davis, so much for your time. It's a really fascinating conversation and, and a hugely important topic um, you know, to be thinking about as we move into the next few years. Look, thank you for the chance to chat to both of you. I really enjoyed it. It was a, a great discussion. I'd certainly love to chat some more. And uh, you know, there's so much out there to talk about um, in terms of what's happening in the world. I mean, we haven't even got into talking about autonomous systems and robotics on the battlefield, so <laughs> let alone hypersonics and directed energy weapons. So there's all that to talk about in another chat. So where, where should people find you, where you're writing? Are you, is it Twitter the best place? Where, where can people look you up? I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I occasionally go into Facebook, but I'm fast losing interest in Facebook. So it's mainly Twitter and LinkedIn um, if you follow me uh, and you'll see all my my work there. Plus, go onto the ASPE website and go to the Strategist blog, and I've got regular pieces coming out on that as well. We'll, we'll make sure we, we link those in the description. So any final words, James? No, uh, this, yeah, this was great for me. I'm really excited that we, we got the chance to, uh, to, to talk to you, uh, pick your brain a bit. And, uh, uh, I learned a bunch. And so I always know it's a good discussion when I've, uh, had my, my perspective expanded a bit. So thank you very much, sir, for, for providing that. Well, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks again, Dr. Davis. Take care. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to Unbound. If you enjoyed our conversation, the best way you can help us continue it is to give us a like and a five-star review wherever you get podcasts. It'd go a long way to help us grow our user base and include more and more people in our conversation. See you next time.